For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alex Schroeder. I serve on staff here as our Minister of Discipleship. Uh, I'm just so grateful to get to worship with you guys, and I'm grateful to get to open God's Word with you this morning. Growing up, I was always a bit of a nervous or fearful kid. Uh, It was true in a lot of ways, but in particular, it showed itself a lot when it came time to drive in the snow. Um, So I'm from Northwest Arkansas, so we don't get a ton of snow, but we do get some. Like, it's a thing that's going to happen every year. And every year, I would freak out. Um, When it'd snow, they'd cancel school. Everybody would run to the local Walmart, get their bread and milk, because that's what we need when it snows. And then everybody would start talking about the most dangerous part of the snowy, icy weather. Do you know what I'm talking about? Black ice. And as a kid, this both seemed really harmless to me and horrifying. The way people talked about it, I, was, I didn't know what it was. And as I got older, I came to learn. And we're still new to Albuquerque, so I don't know if black ice is a thing that translates to everybody. So let me just explain it briefly. Bear with me if this is old news. Essentially, it, black ice is ice that's transparent. Instead of having a white finish to it, it is totally see-through. And so when it's on black asphalt, it's black. The real danger comes because when you're driving on the road, you cannot distinguish the difference between a wet road that's just wet with water or a road that's got black ice on it. Even though it's transparent, it is just as slick and can cause just as many spin-outs as regular ice. In our passage today, Jesus is going to tell us about a spiritual problem that we all have that is quite a bit like black ice. By that, I mean that it's dangerous to us, particularly because it's hard for us to see if it's going on in our lives. Today in Matthew chapter six, we're going to see Jesus teach on religious hypocrisy. And like black ice, religious hypocrisy can be undetected and it can cause our spiritual lives to spin out. But before we move on, I wanna make sure we're all on the same page on that term hypocrisy. Let's be clear on what we're talking about. Many people today, when they just use the word hypocrite or hypocrisy, they're describing someone whose conduct doesn't line up with the things they say or believe. Let me give you an example. Someone who says personal health and diet is the most important thing anybody can do. And if that person goes and eats five Big Macs a day, we would say, They're a hypocrite. Their walk is not lining up with their talk. The problem, though, as we come to our passage today, is that Jesus seems to use a different definition of hypocrite. Let me explain. The word hypocrite first had its origin in the Greek theater. It was a word that was described the actors that were on stage. When they would prepare for their part, they didn't do what we do today. Actors today will put on makeup, they might undergo some really intense training to do some body transformation before their role. In Greece, they would simply put a mask over their face. And that was how they prepared for the part. So over the course of time, this word hypocrite began to be used to describe someone who had a figurative mask on. People would use it to describe someone who appeared one way or acted one way while internally they were something different. When Jesus uses the word hypocrisy, he's not talking about someone whose walk doesn't line up with their talk, he's talking about someone whose walk doesn't line up with their heart. And so in our passage today, we're going to be confronted 
with that reality? Does your heart line up with your walk? Go ahead and turn with me if you haven't already to Matthew chapter six. As you're turning there, I want us just to briefly orient ourselves to where we are in Jesus's sermon on the mount. You might remember Jesus began this sermon in chapter five and it extends through chapter seven. Last week, we considered what many would consider to be the key verse in the entire sermon. And that's Matthew chapter five, verse 20, where Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Pastor Ryan last week showed us how God's people are called to a greater righteousness. And then Jesus takes the Old Testament law to a place it had never been before. The law is not only about our actions, but it's about our inner hearts and our inner holiness. You might remember last week that anger is sinful, not just murder. Lust is breaking God's law, not just committing adultery. Well, today we're gonna have that exact same theme of greater righteousness. But there's a difference. Last week, we saw that it's about, we saw the law go from, from a place that had never been to a higher place. Now we're gonna see how righteousness is lived out in daily life. What should righteousness look like every day for us? All right, hopefully you're there with me in Matthew chapter six. We'll begin in verse one. Beware of teaching, or excuse me, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Church, let's begin by considering verse one. This is where we'll find our first point today. The danger of public righteousness. If you're taking notes, the danger of public righteousness. Jesus begins our, our passage this morning with the word beware. He has a warning for us. And there's something that you need to be concerned about and afraid of. So what are we to beware of? 
Jesus then tells us about a coupling of an action and a motivation. Did you hear that? The practice of righteousness before others is the action and the motivation is to be seen by them. In other words, the danger is that we would do deeds of righteousness, things like reading, praying, fasting, giving, serving, leading, singing, and so on, that we would do these things before others and that our primary motivation for doing it would be so that others would notice us. And it's more than just that they would notice us, right? It's that they would like us or they would think highly of us or that we would be impressive to them. That's what we're after. But let's be clear here. Let me ask you a question. Think with me. Is Jesus condemning spiritual disciplines? Or is he condemning living a devout life? Of course not. The problem isn't in doing righteous deeds. The problem is the motivation that under, that's underneath the surface that's causing the righteous deeds to occur. So Jesus gives us this general principle in verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And then to the rest of our passage, he gives us three examples of this playing itself out. In verse two, he begins by talking about giving to the needy. And he describes this person who's walking on the street perhaps, and they're about to give money to somebody who's in need. And right before they do it, they pull the trumpet out of their satchel and let out a big blow. And everybody around is caught off guard, their attention's drawn to it, just in time to see the person drop the money down. Jesus says their heart is that they may be praised by others for what they're doing. Then he tells us about another person who loves to pray. And they don't just love to pray, they love to do it so much they just can't help themselves do it at any moment. They just burst out loudly on the street corners in the middle of the synagogue service. They can't help themselves pray. But what's their heart? that others may see them. And then finally, he tells us about someone who fasts. But they can't just do it privately. They have to do it in a way where they look gloomy and gaunt and withered and tired from all the religious toil they're doing. And they just want somebody to say, are you okay? You don't look it well. And for them to say, well, I am just fasting to the Lord. On the outside, these actions can look very holy and pure, but internally they're motiva- motivated by the praise of others. Why do you suppose Jesus gives us these three examples? Is there something unique about these three things? Something about these three things that lead to more opportunity to be be tempted to religious hypocrisy? I don't think so. I think what's a more likely answer for why he gives us these three things is that in the Jewish day that Jesus was preaching in, these were benchmarks of sorts. If you did these three things as a Jew, you are really spiritual and really devout. And so for us then, the danger is that these three things have changed. There's new things that we can put up as a mask in hopes that others might be impressed by us. Maybe how much you know the Bible, how well you memorize it and how quickly you can just quote it off in conversation. Maybe it's that you use the right words when you describe your Christian life. You've been having that quiet time, some good time of fellowship. You're just growing in the Lord. You're just trying to be a Proverbs 31 woman, right? We know this Christianese lingo and we can use it as a wall and a defense. 
Maybe it's that you're the first to pray when you're with a close friend. You initiate it. You ask, man, how can I pray for you? And it's a way for you to say, I'm the one who asked. I'm the spiritual one here. Maybe it's that you lead in a public way in our church. Maybe your face is recognized because you're always at the doors every Sunday. Maybe it's that you're the one who talks about how you've shared with your two and 22 people. And isn't it so deceptive? What can be just a way to encourage or update one another, of being honest with each other, the, the Satan can so easily twist and make our hearts rejoice in somebody going, huh, whoa, wow. This is the real danger for us, church. It's so deceptive. It's so deceptive. And it's not deceptive to one another, right? It's deceptive to ourselves. Often we can fool ourselves, right? Perhaps we, like black ice, is a danger to us. We can live our Christian lives and overlook that our primary motivation is that other people in this room might see us and think, well, that guy's super spiritual. That woman is godly. It's hard to discern. Jeremiah 17, nine says the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? This is a danger to us. There's another problem with this, living like this religious hypocrite. It's that, it's, that you become a glory stealer. You're stealing glory that's not yours. Your obedience isn't about God anymore, it's about you. What should be God honoring is honoring to you. The reality is you actually do the exact opposite of what Jesus commands in Matthew 5, 15, verse 16. If you flipped over there, you'd see that Jesus tells us to let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give glory to who? Your Father who is in heaven. But when we're religious hypocrites, we let our light shine before others that they would praise who? Us. We become glory stealers when we are hypocrites like this and our actions are motivated by the praise of other people. We actually do the exact opposite of what kingdom citizens are doing. But what are we really about when we do this? What are we after? Why does that so appeal to us? It's because we want the attention the approval and the acceptance of other people. But when I put it that way, religious hypocrisy is just one symptom of a bigger problem, right? Because there are tons of ways that the idol of other people's opinions and approval of you manifests itself out. Do you see that? Maybe if you don't, let me rattle off some things that we may do that's motivated by the exact same heart issue. Wanting other people's opinions and approvals is the same thing that makes us tell a cruel joke at someone's expense at the workplace or in the home. It's the same thing that makes you be a workaholic so that your boss is happy. It's the same thing that makes you anxious when somebody asks you, why did you do it that way? Or have you ever thought about this? Or says, I don't know if that was very good. If you're in middle school or high school and you feel that draw to fit in, that's the heart issue in your heart too. You want other people's attention, <laughs> approval, and acceptance. That still doesn't get to that question. Why is that appealing? Why do we crave that? Why, what's, what's good about it? 
I think deep down it's because we have a problem with justification. Let me explain what I mean by that. Deep down, we all have a sense that there's something wrong with us. We have guilt for our sin, we have shame because of what we've done, and we are faced with two options when we have those feelings. We either lean into them, we magnify it, we just live a a shameful lifestyle with no remorse, or we find a way to cover it up. We try and justify ourselves, and one way that we can do that is by getting people to like us. Because we think that if people think we're smart or cool or funny or even righteous, maybe I'm not so bad after all. But church, that's a false hope. The praise and the acceptance of man cannot remove the real stain of sin that we all have. God alone, by his grace alone, through Christ alone, is the only way that we can have our sins cleansed and our shame removed. You can make the praise of man your home. Many have, they've tried. But in the end, the house's foundation won't stand. Jesus says this in John 5, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What I hope that you see, church, is that religious hypocrisy is a danger lurking at any moment for any one of us, and we must be on guard. We must take seriously the word, beware, that Jesus said to us. If you're not a Christian, I hope that as you're hearing Jesus' words on religious hypocrisy, you're like, man, I like this guy. But I hope that you see you have a problem too. You may not be a religious hypocrite, but have you lived for the praise of other people? Do you let the opinions of your family, friends, coworkers, and neighbors dictate what you think is right, what you choose to do? Of course. What that means is that you have the same problem just fleshed out differently than those religious hypocrites that bother you. And my hope is that you would see that you have a need to turn to Christ, to have your guilt and shame removed and cleansed from you. Jesus doesn't just warn us about the dangers of public righteousness. He also tells us about the heart of true righteousness. This is our second point this morning. The heart of true righteousness. In these verses, Jesus provides us with the antidote to religious hypocrisy. Let me try and show you three things that Jesus says make up the heart of true righteousness. First, The heart of true righteousness is a heart that pursues God through obedience. It's a heart that pursues God through obedience. As we've said earlier, Jesus doesn't condemn righteous acts. It's the motives that he's after in condemning. Instead, Jesus actually assumes that his followers will be doing righteous deeds. If we looked carefully and went back through this passage, we noticed that he says, when you give to the needy, it will be something we're doing when we're praying. We won't run from prayer. No, we will be doing it. So the heart of righteousness is a heart that truly longs to obey God's commands. What we ought not do is think, oh man, well, if obedience can be an opportunity to be a religious hypocrite, then I just shouldn't obey at all. It's, I'm gonna play it safe. 
I'm just going to cut that temptation out of my life. No, that's called licentiousness, and that's foolishness. That's a pendulum that swung too far. You don't correct legalistic thinking, trying to earn your way and earn your approval by licentiousness. Instead, we need to obey his commands. That's what Jesus commands, that we do this. We read the word, that we pray, that we genuinely are turning from sin, that we're fasting, that we're saying Jesus's words and promises are more precious to us than stuff. We serve with generosity. We gather together. We practice one another's like bearing one another and forgiving each other. That's stuff we actually do. That's a heart of true righteousness. The second thing about the heart of true righteousness is that it rejects living for self-glory. It rejects living for self-glory. And all of those examples Jesus gives about giving to the needy, praying and fasting, he gives directions to the, his disciples about doing their deeds of righteousness in secret, right? He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Go into a room, shut the door and pray. Anoint your head with oil and get ready for the day like normal. So what does he mean by these three things? I think if we're gonna summarize it, we'd say this. The theme of true righteousness is that we're willing and we are joyful to obey Jesus even without public recognition. Let me say that again. We're willing and joyful to obey Jesus even without public recognition. Now, some of you may be thinking, does Jesus say that I only should pray in a special closet that I have in my house? I don't think so. I think there's a danger in taking this, these, the way Jesus is thinking here too woodenly. For instance, if we had done that, we shouldn't have had a scripture reader. Ryan, Pastor Ryan shouldn't have come and prayed for us today. We probably shouldn't be singing in front of each other, right? These are all deeds of righteous acts honoring the Lord in public settings. That would be going too far. Let's not even consider the fact that we have evidence of the disciples and Jesus in the Bible praying in public, right? So instead, we need to see that what Jesus is saying is that his disciples will be happy and joyful to obey him even if no one ever knows. That's the heart of true righteousness. It's just joy in doing what God commands, not if anybody ever says, good job, that was awesome. I'm encouraged by what you're doing. We don't need that if we have a heart of true righteous, righteousness. But there's also another danger about self-glory. It's not just that we get glory from one another. Don't we have a temptation to give ourselves glory? Aren't we tempted to keep a list of our rights and wrongs in our head and really pat ourselves on the back when we have a good long tallied list of good deeds? We have to reject even wanting to praise and glory in ourselves by ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor and preacher in uh, England for quite a long time. And he has a commentary on these verses and he had a comment that I just loved. And he said, Christians don't keep spiritual ledgers. We don't keep an accounting of what we've done and reflect on it as if this is our way of justifying ourselves. That's a false hope too. But the true heart of righteousness rejects any glory that comes to ourselves. See, I don't want it from others and I don't want it from myself. 
I don't want either. And the final thing is that a heart of righteousness purposefully lives before the God who sees. We know that God sees. The same phrase is said three times by Jesus at the end of every one of those examples. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. We know there's no such thing as anonymity. There's no such thing as privacy before the eyes of the Lord. No righteousness we do or sin that we commit is unnoticed or unseen. And for most people, that drives them to terrified fear. Nothing is hidden. Everything is laid bare before the Lord. But the way Jesus describes it, this actually seems like an awesome thing. The heart of true righteousness rejoices that God sees. It's got nothing to hide in front of the Lord. And it rejoices that all of these righteous deeds are done before a God who delights in his people and sees it and rejoices. So we ought to remind ourselves that the Lord sees and he knows all of the glances, the stray thoughts, the wasted time, the angry, bitter things that float in our mind. Brothers and sisters, this picture that Jesus has painted for us is true righteousness. It's the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Without this righteousness, you won't and I won't, nobody will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do you feel the burden of that? Because when I reflect on my own life and I think about how slow my heart is to obey, and I think about how quickly my heart gets excited when others might have taken notice of something good I've done, or how much I don't live regularly remembering that Jesus sees everything I do, and I think that's what true righteousness is, I'm crushed by the law. Brothers and sisters, in your best moments, you know that your righteousness doesn't measure up either. We all fall short of this law of God. But this is exactly what the law of God is meant to draw us to. It's meant to draw us to a place of desperation, crying out like Paul in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the mark of a Christian is not pure, genuine, sincere, anti-hypocritical heart all the time. The mark of a Christian is faith in the only one that has ever had that heart. Let me say that again in case you missed it. The mark of a Christian is faith in the only person that's ever had a pure, genuine, sincere heart for the Lord. Church, praise God that we have that person to have faith in. Jesus' words are not just given to us as a stone tablets to bear us down and break us. They're to draw us back to him. These words lead us to Jesus. He possessed the righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees. He only has it. <clears throat> he obeyed the law of God perfectly in every action and in every emotion and in every desire and motivation. He 
honored the Lord always. Have you ever stopped to think of how many times Jesus' righteousness was on display before other people? Think about all the acts of mercy. We don't even have all of them recorded. There's times where the Bible just says, and people kept coming, and Jesus kept healing. Every moment of mercy was an opportunity for Jesus to get puffed up in his righteousness, for him to want glory from man and not glory from the one source of glory, the Father. Every teaching, every question that he rebuked and answered back, and Jesus never once did this in a self-seeking glory like you and I are tempted to do. Jesus even tells us this. He's honest about his motivation. In John 8, he says, I do not seek my own glory. At the end of his life, as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, I glorified you, the Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All of Jesus' life was lived in sincerity to a loving God. He never did it in a self-seeking way like you and I are tempted to do. He fulfilled the moral obligations of the law and his death removes our guilt and sin for being hypocrites. Brothers and sisters, his work is finished. So that burden of the law that weighs on us so heavy, if we're in Christ, is removed. It's gone because of what Jesus has done for us. Do you know what also is true now for you? You have a heavenly father that looks upon you with eyes of love and favor. Maybe another way I could put it is that you have attention, approval, and acceptance before the God that created the universe. So when you were tempted to get those three things from others, you've already got it from a being that's so much greater than other people in this room or outside of this room. You're trading something that's so grand and glorious for something that's so petty. But isn't that what sin is? Isn't that what it always is? We need to look to Jesus. We need to look to him. Regardless of what you're feeling right now, you need to look to him. If you look at those three things of giving to the needy, praying, fasting, and you're puffed up in righteousness, you need to look to him and be humbled. If you're just wrecked by this, You need to look to Jesus and have your burden lifted. If you're kind of conflicted and you don't know, you've been walking with the Lord for a while, but there's these days when you reflect upon the sinfulness of your heart and you're tempted to doubt and lack assurance because would a Christian really still sin like I'm sinning every day? You know, you need need to look to Jesus because confidence in your faith isn't what saves you. It's your faith that saves you. So look to him. And if you feel like there's no possible way that you could come to Jesus because of how awful of a person you are, you need to look to Jesus. He extends an offer to all of us today. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So church, look to Jesus. His righteousness is enough for us to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Church, before we move on to our final point, I need to say a few words about the Lord's Prayer. You'll notice it's sandwiched in to our passage here. 
I've given you a structure, I think, I haven't said it directly, but I think you've picked up on it. There's a general idea and then three examples. And when Jesus gets to prayer, he gives us an extended answer about prayer. So I can't, I can't go on without doing this, but I don't want us to, like Ryan said last week, uh, miss the forest for looking on trees. So there's so much more that should be said about the Lord's Prayer, but I'm just gonna give us a couple brief thoughts and then we'll move on. First, it's likely that the Lord's Prayer is intentionally left at the very middle of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of debate over the exact structure of how you break up all these passages, but I think a really compelling answer uh, is that it's right at the very middle, which should suggest to us that it has a significant place in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so forgive me for saying so little about it, right? Well, there will be a time and place, hopefully, for all of us to spend more time reflecting on these words. Second thing I wanna say is that the Lord's Prayer is a model prayer for us. It's a model prayer for us to follow. Notice that when Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer in verse nine, he says, pray then like this. Meaning this prayer isn't meant to be a verbatim thing. It can be, but it's meant to be a model for a template, if you will, for us to follow. Martin Luther, who was a Protestant reformer in the 1500s, Martin Luther was once asked by his barber, how do you pray, Martin? Give me some help. So he wrote a short little pamphlet that you can find online called The Simple Way to Pray. And in it, Martin Luther said that every morning and evening, he would walk through the Sermon on the Mount and the petitions that are, the, um, not the Sermon on the Mount, he'd walk through the Lord's Prayer and those six petitions that are in the Lord's Prayer. And he would use them as a way to launch off and think and reflect on his day and say, how can I ask God to be hallowed in my day-to-day? How can I ask God's will to be done in my day-to-day? Later, he'd say, what particular temptations do I foresee coming? And I'm gonna ask the Lord to guard me and protect me and deliver me from those evils. So I think we would be, would be served well to more regularly look to the Lord's Prayer as a template to follow. Finally, one other key point of the, sermon, or of the Lord's Prayer. I think particularly the prayer is aimed at shaping us, shaping us. What do I mean by that? First, at the very beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, we were given qualities of the, of the citizen of, king, of the kingdom of heaven, right? These beatitudes, if you will. I think it's hard to pray a prayer like the Lord's Prayer if you don't exhibit things like poverty of spirit, if you don't exhibit meekness, if you're not hungering for righteousness, can you really pray, your will be done? But as the saints pray these things, we are instructed and taught what matters most in God's kingdom. And we are shaped to value those things too. Let me give you even a more concrete example. Jesus tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So does that mean that if you don't pray it, you're not gonna get your daily needs supplied? Well, of course not. We've lived lives not praying the Lord's Prayer every day and our needs have been met. And Jesus even acknowledges this really clearly. If we looked back in chapter five, Jesus at one point says that God call, causes the sun to rise on evil people and good people, on the righteousness and the unjust. And he says he sends rains on those same people. Jesus teaches about common grace, that God is at work caring for and providing for people who honor him and people who don't honor him. So in the end, why every day would Jesus recommend that we pray, give us this day our daily bread? Because it's shaping us to be people who are looking to God's hands, 
to be the hands that give what we need. And that's the, I think the intention of the prayer is for us to be shaped into humble, dependent people that are like Christ, meek, and who honor the Lord. There's far more that should be said about this. There's far, I'm sure there's many questions you have about things that are said in the Lord's Prayer. Hopefully in your own time and maybe at another point, we'll be able to consider this together as a church. Let's move on to our final point. We've seen the danger of public righteousness, the heart of true righteousness, and finally we'll see the reward of secret righteousness. The reward of secret righteousness. As we've said, Jesus alone can obey God's law. And yet when we trust in him, we are given new hearts to obey. And we're given God's spirit to empower. The law crushes us under its weight and then we're restored and given life by the spirit. Life to do what? To obey these commands. Listen to this promise from God in Ezekiel 36, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and what will the result of that be? I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You will walk in them. And you'll be careful to obey my rules. And I think Jesus leaves in this section something that ought to motivate us to honor him in private, rejecting the praise of the, of the world. And what is that? It's future rewards. Jesus I think the word reward is used like seven or eight times in these eight or 18 verses. It's a significant theme of our passage. First, Jesus makes clear, if you care most for the praise of men, that's all the rewards you're gonna get. Your consolation prize is that people said, oh, you're cool, that's it. But if your praise is for God and you live knowing that he watches you and he's the audience you live before, you get a reward from your heavenly father. So what's the reward he keeps talking about? I would suggest to you guys that the reward is seeing and being with him in unhindered fellowship one day. We look forward to that patiently and we do it as we labor. Matthew 25 gives us a picture of this reward. It'll be a long time till we're there, so I don't think I'm taking any thunder from whoever preaches Matthew 25. But in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us the parable of the talents. And in this parable, Jesus describes a king who's going to leave from the kingdom and be gone for a while to acquire another kingdom. And he says to the servants that he leaves behind, I'm going to entrust you with money and resources, and while I'm away, you're called to be faithful with them and to do my business while I'm away. Does that sound familiar yet? Do you guys see who's, who the people are in the parable? King Jesus has left and he entrusts who? The church with resources, spiritual gifts, right? To be faithful with until he comes back. And so the king returns and he goes to those servants and he says, show me the evidence of your faithfulness. And two of those servants with those talents, the money and resources he, they, they, he left for them, they come and say, Lord, look, I've produced gain in the kingdom. There's increase to the talents you've left behind. And the king says to those servants, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. The reward we look forward to is being in the joy 
of the presence of Jesus, an unhindered fellowship. And church, reflecting on that should motivate us to daily obedience. And let me say this, just to make it clear. Focusing on that, looking forward to those rewards, doesn't make your daily obedience insincere. You might be tempted to think, well, shouldn't I just obey out of obedience sake? Shouldn't I just obey just because I love him? Should I really look forward to reward? And I'd say, yes, because that's what Jesus is telling you to do. That's why he keeps holding that out over and over again. Do this and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And church, we have the example of this in tons of people from the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, often called the hall of faith, describes, I don't even know how many, a number of saints from the Old Testament who believed in the promises of God. And there is a repeated thing over and over again describing their lives. They were looking forward to the promise. They were looking forward to a city without foundations. They were looking forward to a better country. It even says that Moses didn't treat the pleasures of this world as worth going toward instead of the future reward he was gonna get later. Use the exact same word, reward. So saints, since the beginning that saints have existed, people who've trusted in God's promises have always been motivated for present obedience by looking forward to future rewards. So brothers and sisters, stay faithful today by looking forward to what God will surely bring to you. He will. He will. And look forward to the day when you'll be in a world with no sin and death and you will never be tempted toward being a hypocrite ever again. Our joy is not in being known by one another as righteous people. That's not what our hope is in. That's petty. That's a gold, that's like a fake plastic gold participation award. We don't want that. We want the real reward. Our joy is being known by our Father in heaven and knowing that he calls us faithful in Christ. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for this reward. And God, you are the reward. It's you. Father, we thank you that by grace we get to experience it now. That we have real communion, real grace given to us now. And oh, Father, we look forward knowing that there will be a day when it is even more experienced by us. And there will be nothing that inhibits it then. Oh, Father, would you help us to be motivated toward those rewards? And would you help us to honor you with a sincere heart that does not love the praise of men? God, we pray all this in Christ's name, amen.